I'm reading John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18 from the Tree of Life version. But Miriam stood outside the tomb weeping. As she was weeping, she bent down to look into the tomb. She sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where Yeshua's body had been lying. Woman, why are you crying? They say to her. She says to them, because they took away my master, and I don't know where they've put him. After she said these things, she turned around, and she sees Yeshua standing there, yet she did not know that it was Yeshua. Yeshua says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Thinking he's the gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell him where you've put him, and I will take him away. Yeshua says to her, Miriam. Turning around, she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Yeshua says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet gone up to the Father. Go to my brothers and tell them I am going up to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Miriam from Magdala comes, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and what he had said to her. Good morning, Elevation family. What a joy it is to worship with you today on Easter Sunday. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Kristen Taylor. My husband, Dwayne, and our kids, Noel and Nathan, have been attending Elevation since 2015, and I'm on the teaching team here at Elevation. So I want to start today by sharing a story that starts out kind of horrific, but ends, hopefully, with a little bit of a chuckle. Um, when I was pregnant with Nathan, this would have been 11 years ago, Noel was three years old, and Dwayne and I lost her in a very busy mall. It was a terrifying moment. Um, we looked high and low. We had gone to the Apple store to get our computer looked at. I was at the, the computer desk with the tech guy working on the computer when Dwayne came to me and said, Noel's gone. And I said, what do you mean she's gone? And he said, I can't find her. I don't know how much time passed, but it was enough time for us to search the whole store to go out and search the surrounding area of the mall and the surrounding stores, not find her, come back, get the manager of the Apple store. The manager called security and security went and posted at each of the exits to keep an eye out for a blonde haired little girl with glasses. And I remember in that time, just the sense of dread and despair that sunk over me. I like every terrible story you hear on the news about families whose kids are kidnapped or whose kids die, I thought, oh, this is what this feels like. This is my reality now. And I remember clear as day thinking, my son is never going to meet his big sister because I, we couldn't find her and I had no means of making her come back. And then all of a sudden, just like that, out of the blue, she came toddling around the corner. She had gone all the way down the hall, gone around the corner, gone into the dollar store, and was walking up and down the aisles of the dollar store. Dwayne hadn't seen her when he had stuck his head in there. I don't even know. I mean, she was so little. I don't even know how she knew how to find her way back to us, like what direction to go when she left the store. But the sheer feeling of relief and joy could have cracked my chest open. And then that was followed pretty quickly by fury, <laughs> just anger at ourselves that we had allowed that to happen, at her for walking off. And I knew pretty quickly that um, I wanted her to understand how dangerous that was, but she was only three. And so 
I wasn't sure that consequences would really work, but I had remembered reading um, that indigenous in the indigenous communities, um, they often will instruct their children through stories. And so I thought, okay, I sat her down right there in the mall and I said, Noel, um, once there was a mommy duck and a baby duck and the baby duck wandered away from the mommy duck and the mommy duck couldn't find the baby duck and then a fox came and ate the, the baby duck. And she just started crying and she was like, I don't like that ending. I don't like that story. And I was like, I know, but that is the story and you need to understand the world that we live in. Well, fast forward three years and I lost Nathan in a grocery store. And you're going to think I'm an awful parent and maybe I am, but I just besiege the parents out there with toddlers. You know, right? Like you have to have eyes in the back of your head. They're so squirrely. They will get away from you so fast. And I was standing at the deli counter at the grocery store and then Noel um, tapped my leg and said, Noel, uh, said Nathan's gone. And I was like, what do you mean he's gone? Well, it didn't take long to find him. He had just gone around the corner down the aisle. But by the time we found him, Noel had been really shaken. And it was like all the panic and the fear came rushing in. And she just started crying and crying because she had thought we'd lost her little brother. But then we found him. So I took us into the, the washrooms there at the grocery store to collect ourselves. And meanwhile, Noel had pulled Nathan up onto the bench in the bathroom. And I overheard her saying to him, Nathan, once there was a mommy duck and a baby duck. I wonder uh, if you have ever been in a moment like that where something so dear and so precious to you, um, you thought maybe you've lost it and then it's returned to you. And I can't help but think of that feeling, that sheer sense of joy and relief. Um, when I read this story in the lectionary, our lectionary passage for this Sunday, John 20 verses 11 through 18, um, this is a passage that one commentator calls the most profound passage in all of scripture. And it's the moment when Mary encounters the risen Jesus by the garden tomb. In the verses leading up to this passage, Mary goes to the tomb to check on Jesus's body, but finds that it's missing. And she runs to the disciples and, and Peter and John come immediately. Peter goes into the tomb and sees that it's empty. And he and John run back home to figure out what has happened. But Mary stays. She's so grief stricken that she cannot leave or rest until she finds Jesus's body. And so she starts asking where is he? Where is he? She encounters the angels in the tomb and in the only passage in scripture that I, I'm pretty sure I know of, um, in every other instance, whenever a human encounters an angel, they're, they're overwhelmed with fear and the angels always have to say, be not afraid. But in this case, she's so grief stricken over losing um, Jesus's body that um, they don't say, have no fear. They say, why are you crying? And she says, I've, I've lost him. I can't find him. Where is he? Where's my master? And then she sees Jesus in the garden and she mistakes him for the gardener. And, and in her grief, she says, please tell me, where did you put him? Where did you put my master? Can you imagine that, what that moment must have felt like when he revealed himself to her, when he said her name and she suddenly realized that the person she thought she had lost forever, not only had she found the body, but he was alive um, 
from that moment on, Jesus says to her, go and tell my disciples that I'm alive and that I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And it's for that reason, it's that instruction that Jesus gives her that is the reason why the early church calls Mary the apostle to the apostles, because she was the first person to preach the Easter message. She went to the disciples and she said, Jesus is alive. He didn't stay in the grave and nothing else will ever be the same again. This is uh, what I find so beautiful about this passage. And as I was researching it this week, there's so much um, depth and richness in this. And, and so I wanted to share with you three insights um, I got from this passage in my research and my study and my prayer. Um, and these three insights, I think, speak to that deep sense of joy uh, and relief um, that we feel when we have recovered something that we thought was lost to us forever. That feeling right there, I think that feeling is Easter. I think that's what we talk about when we talk about Easter and we talk about joy on Easter. And we say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. So the three cool things that I want to point out and sort of uh, walk with you uh, through today are one, what I'm calling uh, the tale of two gardens. So there's actually a story of two gardens here in this passage. So we'll look at that. And then the imagery of God as the divine gardener who has been working since the beginning of time to pave a way for us back to himself. And then Jesus as the incarnation of God, the divine gardener, who is himself the divine gardener, cultivating our hearts and our lives uh, for him. So let's start by playing a word association game. Um, I want you to get in the mindset of all the Bible stories you've read over the years. And um, when I say a word, I want you to think of the very first Bible study or Bible story that comes to mind. So when I say the word garden, what's the first Bible story that comes to mind? If you thought Garden of Eden, that's the same association that the early Jewish believers would have made when they read this passage and heard this story. In John 19, 41, the Bible tells us that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, and that was the tomb in which Jesus was lain. So this whole encounter between Mary and Jesus, as we've established, is happening in a garden, and those early Jewish believers would have heard echoes of the Garden of Eden from Genesis. They would have seen these two gardens as mirror reflections of one another, one beginning the story uh, and creation and the other completing the story. And, and when they heard the story of Jesus and Mary in the garden, they would have heard the first words of Genesis in the beginning that marked the beginning of God's work and creation in the Garden of Eden. And then they would have heard over the new garden the words in the new beginning, because now something new was happening here with Jesus in this garden, the risen Jesus in this garden for all of creation. And this is no accident. This is the association that John, who's the writer of this gospel, wants us to see and wants us to make in this moment. Mary Chloe writes that John believes that Jesus fulfills the Jewish hope for a restoration envisaged as a return of humankind to Eden. So what is she saying here? Well, she's telling us that for John and those early Jewish readers, 
What they were seeing when they see Jesus and Mary is a way for us to return to the Garden of Eden and that that way to the Garden of Eden has just been opened again. That Jesus was opening the door for us um, in this new garden to walk back into the relationship with God that had existed in the Garden of Eden. So, and this isn't a metaphor. The Garden of Eden here in this context isn't a metaphor for heaven. This isn't referring to some sort of disembodied reality out there that's in another dimension. No, this new Garden of Eden is the embodiment here and now of walking with Jesus day by day, like Adam and Eve had walked in the evening with God in the Garden of Eden living in communion together in real ways that change our hearts and lives and relationships. So to understand the significance of this, we do need to return to that original story of the garden. Uh, That garden created all the way back at the beginning of time and set in the east, as Genesis tells us. We know that in this first garden, all things lived in harmony together. And more importantly, as I mentioned before, God who planted the garden walked in it, quote, at the time of the evening breeze, as Genesis 3, 8 tells us. And Adam and Eve walked with God every day in fellowship and communion. They were close to God and they shared everything with him. And then something really hard happened. Even though Adam and Eve had God right there with them, the source of all knowledge and wisdom and life, they chose to look elsewhere for those same things. They went to a tree and tried to get knowledge and wisdom and life out of a tree. And in that moment, something fractured deep in their souls, the place in their hearts that was only ever meant for God, their creator, whom they walked with every evening in the garden, that place in their hearts they gave to something else. And from that moment on, their legacy has been dislocation, isolation, and exile. Even though God, the creator, never stopped loving them or trying to walk with them, um, they just couldn't hear him right anymore. Something was off. There was an interference that distorted their understanding of themselves and God. They looked at their naked bodies and they were ashamed. Why? They had never been ashamed before. It was like they couldn't see right anymore. And through all of this, they had to leave the garden. This dislocation has been our birthright. Even though God has never left us, even though God loves us, we can't hear him right. We can't feel him quite right. It's like there's a veil or something between us. And it's not just between us and God, but between us and ourselves. We look at ourselves And we don't see ourselves right anymore either. We hate ourselves. We're ashamed of ourselves. We wish we were different. We treat ourselves badly. And our relationship with those around us are broken too. We don't hear each other right anymore. They can mean well and we can mean well. And yet we can still miss each other. We can hurt each other. We can miscommunicate and misunderstand This is the legacy of the dislocation that happened when Adam and Eve, our first father and mother, gave their hearts to a tree instead of God. And for all of time, the Jews understood that it was God's great saving work to try and bring us back into the Garden of Eden again. So when we read the story of Jesus and Mary in the Garden, Um, they would have thought of that first garden and that first exile 
And they would have seen that in this new garden, Jesus, because of his death on the cross and resurrection, had miraculously opened the way for all of us um, to walk back into that garden and make things right again with God, to give our hearts back to God. John and the early Jewish believers weren't the only ones to see this parallel between the two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden Tomb. Sister Grace Remington of the Cisterian Sisters of the Mississippi Abbey used crayon and ink to draw this picture of Mary and Eve. And I find this image absolutely arresting. Here we see both of the gardens represented. Mary is pregnant with Jesus, the Savior, and she's consoling Eve, who clutches the fruit of the tree while a snake circles her leg. And the following poem is inscribed in the picture. It says, My mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed, do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O oh, Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever, life without end. So this image, I think, is just a really beautiful artistic reflection of what John and those early Jewish believers understood about this passage, that through Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, God had created a way for us to walk with him again in the Garden of Eden. So just a cool note here, pop quiz. Um, who was the first human to experience the presence of God in the Garden of Eden? Who was the first human to, to experience the presence of God in the Garden of Eden? Adam. And who is the first human to experience the presence of the risen Jesus in this new garden? It's Mary. Mary Chloe writes that Mary's being first reverses the order of entry into the Garden of Eden. That is to say that both men and women have received the divine blessing and invitation of being first. Both are welcomed into the presence of God equally, and both are given the right to be sons and daughters of God on equal footing. Okay, so here's another cool thing from this passage. We often say that Mary mistook Jesus for the gardener. Um, that it was a mistake. She was like so grief-stricken she didn't see him clearly, which is true in one respect, absolutely. But more than one commentator uh, has said that actually she was right. Jesus is a gardener. He's the divine gardener standing in the spirit of Yahweh, the creator, the divine gardener in Eden. God planted the Garden of Eden, and in Genesis 2.9 it says that the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. And that's what gardeners do. They cultivate life. When we lived in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Duane decided to get his Master of Gardener, his Master Gardener certificate. And as you can imagine, see, he would have been in his mid-30s at that time. It was him and a bunch of retired women. They loved him. They just thought he was great. He was a big hit. Uh, but it's been so fun to watch him over the years take those skills and that knowledge and cultivate our backyard. So when we moved here seven years ago, we didn't have any gardens in our backyard. It was just a blank slate. But now we have three vegetable boxes, four flower beds, and three trees that he's planted. 
And I watch him work away at these garden beds throughout the year. He'll plant something somewhere and they decide that it doesn't work there and he'll transplant it to another location where it'll thrive better. He'll split up perennials and spread them around the backyard. He'll plant new native flowers to attract butterflies and bees. And every spring and summer and fall, it's like this cascading surprise of blooms um, just throughout the seasons where I get to see how the work he's put in the year before takes root. I've come to realize when I see a beautiful garden that what I'm seeing is not just the investment of skill, but the investment of time. When I notice pretty gardens, what I see now are literally years of cultivation of a tender gardener paying attention, nourishing, pruning, planting, and transplanting season after season after season. And this is the image we get of God when we read this passage through the eyes of the early Jewish believers. They would have seen Jesus as the incarnation of the divine gardener who was from the beginning of time steadily working year after decade after century to save us, to redeem the world, and to bring us back to himself. All God's work with the Israelites as his chosen people, that was God cultivating a pathway. All God's leading and shaping of the Israelite kings and judges, that was God's gardening work paving away all God's messages through the through the prophets that was God the gardener providing trellises to help us grow back to him and here when Jesus stands in the garden before Mary she is not wrong he is the gardener but not the gardener of that little plot of land he's the gardener of our hearts Jesus his death on the cross and his resurrection are the culmination, the full bloom of God's tending and working and nurturing and cultivating um, through the centuries to bring us back to Eden, to heal our hearts, and to heal our relationship with him. And this is the work he has been engaged in for centuries. This is the joy the, the early Jewish readers would have felt when they read and heard this story. The work is complete. Everything God had been steadily working to accomplish to save us, to bring us back to himself, that's all come to full fruition in the resurrected body of Jesus. I'm struck here too with the image of the gardener versus a contractor. So while Jesus has saved us on the cross, that may not mean that the fruits of that salvation immediately come up as a fully matured garden in our hearts and our lives. And I know Jesus could do that if he wanted, and I know he does in some instances immediately heal uh, addictions or broken places in our life. But sometimes he doesn't just plop down into our hearts a perfectly manicured garden where every plant has grown to maturity and every vine has flourished with fruit and every bush and tree are placed just exactly in the right spot. Where would the relationship be in that? That's a contractor. That's someone you pay to come in and fix everything for you in a moment and then they're gone. But that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus the gardener who tends to you in your life day after day, pulling the weeds, watering your soul, moving, uh, 
month after month, the plants around year after year, shaping the landscape of your heart and your life. Isn't that so much more beautiful? Isn't that so much more intimate? I'm reminded here of a season during my late 20s of spiritual direction. And if you're not familiar with spiritual direction, um, my friend and professional spiritual director, Krista Hesselink, describes it in this way. She says that a spiritual director doesn't so much direct you as help direct your attention to the movement of God within. So I've long battled anxiety, and during this particular stretch in my late 20s, um, the anxiety was pretty disruptive to the quality of my life, and I was really struggling. I brought this battle with anxiety to my spiritual director, and she encouraged me to take my anxiety to Jesus. She encouraged me to imagine that I was holding my anxiety in my hands, my open hands, and that I was standing before Jesus. And then she advised me to pray, here's my anxiety, Jesus, now what? Here's my anxiety, Jesus, now what? This wasn't the first time I had ever brought my anxiety to Jesus in prayer, but my prayer had always been for him to just take it away, to just make the psychic pain stop. But this time, as I went into that prayer posture, I saw in my mind that Jesus was standing really close in front of me, and I couldn't see his face. It was, I was just at his chest level and his shoulders, but he was standing right in front of me, and he and I were looking down at my hands and the anxiety that I was holding in them, and our heads were very close, almost touching as we were looking down. And then suddenly the perspective spun 360. It was like in the movies, you know, when the camera circles around the subject and then comes back. And when I landed back at the beginning, I was no longer in my late 20s. I had aged. I had gray hair. My skin had softened and wrinkled. And Jesus and I were still standing there together, communing over my anxiety. And I asked in my heart, what's the meaning of this? And I felt the realization dawn on me that this is how I would live a life close to Jesus. This is what an active day-to-day -day relationship with Jesus looked like for me. That the very thing that was the source of brokenness for me had become a place of communion with my Jesus. I had that spiritual direction session about 15 years ago. And this has been an, an experience with Jesus um, over the years, that whenever I feel that psychic pain of anxiety, it's an invitation for me to stop and return to the presence of Jesus. I go back to my centering prayer to sit in his presence and allow him to hold me and love me at that point of the pain. And over the years, I've gotten healthier and healthier. The Lord has led me to wonderful healthcare professionals who've been able to really give me extra support and even medication that has really helped my mental health tremendously. And I credit this all to the loving hand of my Father and Jesus, my Heavenly Father. So for me, this is the miracle of the cross. Uh, this is part of what it means that Jesus can redeem my heart and my life. That the things which would break me become the place where I actually can spend my life meeting with Jesus, fellowshipping with him, walking with him day by day in the garden of my heart. So what is the takeaway of all of this for Easter Sunday from this passage? The tale of two gardens 
God is the divine gardener and Jesus as the incarnation of the divine gardener in our lives. Well, Francis Martin and William Wright direct our hearts to a final application that we can take away from this story of Jesus encountering Mary in this new garden. They write, Mary's transformation and mission is the same for every follower of Christ. We are called to seek Jesus intensely and with great love, allowing him to possess our hearts and change our lives. Mary's mission is the mission of all Christians in the world to bear witness to the reality of the risen Jesus and the transforming power of his love available to all who seek it. The only way in which Christians can carry out this mission is if our lives are first grounded in a personal encounter with the risen Lord and with the grace of his Holy Spirit. When I think about this from Martin and Wright, I think about Mary in that garden, seeking with all her heart. Even when Peter and John had left to try and go find him, she couldn't leave. She, her great love for Jesus compelled her to look for him. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And on this Easter, I want to embody Mary's question. I want to have a heart that is pointed towards Jesus and asking, where is he? Where is Jesus in this day? Where is Jesus working in my life? Where is Jesus working in my heart? And then I want to be able to open my heart to the divine gardener and allow Jesus to cultivate me, to transform me bit by bit until I look more and more like him. I pray this for all of us. May our lives bear witness to the reality of the risen Jesus He isn't dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He's alive. And that changes everything for our hearts, for our families, for our communities, and for the world. May our lives bear witness to the transforming power of Jesus' love for everyone who has a merry heart and looks for him earnestly. May we, on this Easter, encounter the risen Jesus in the garden of our hearts And through the grace of his Holy Spirit, allow him to transform us to be a light in the world. Amen.